I started to meet people in the creative arts because there's still the remnants of kind of Soviet photo schools and things. Mm. So they'd say, oh, you need to meet my friend in Murmansk. He's great. They have a great <laughs> photo club. And I'd get on a plane and go to Murmansk. And I got a, they said, don't take a taxi when you get to Murmansk. We'll pick you up. So they picked me up in a van with no windows. Welcome to Fashion Cast, the fashion industry's premier podcast where we explore all things fashion, from designers and the latest styles to sustainability and breaking fashion news, we keep you informed. Now, enjoy the show with your hosts, Michael Gloucester and me, Christine Tuck-Tuck. We are really excited about today's guest, Thomas Werner, author of The Fashion Image, editor-at-large for Irk Magazine, former owner of the Thomas Werner Gallery in Manhattan, former director of the photography program at Parsons School of Design, public speaker, photographer, and consultant. So thank you for joining us today, Thomas. My pleasure. So tell us how you began your journey into the world of fashion and specifically fashion photography. Sure. Uh, I had a friend who was a photographer when I was at University of Madison. I, I graduated from Madison. That's my first degree. And he was a photographer and we did a lot of motorcycling. So he kind of talked me into getting a camera and we would tour and do a lot of shooting. And when I moved to LA after graduation, I worked in casting and had access to a lot of people and photographed rather obsessively. And other people in casting thought that was kind of crazy, but I loved it. So uh, the jobs I started to get in photography were much harder than I knew how to do. So I went and got a second degree from Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. And when I graduated, the photo editor at InStyle magazine, not InStyle, LA Style at the time, mm. said, you need to decide whether you want to do fashion or portraiture. And great portrait photographers rarely do fashion, but great fashion photographers do a lot of portraiture. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I want to be a fashion photographer. And I knew a model who had just been sent to Europe for her first season in Paris. And I was able to see in the model apartment and I bought a flight and went to the Louvre and got very dressed up and asked people outside of the entrance if they had tickets to the shows. And I got to see uh, Lagerfeld, uh, Valentino. Wow. It was wow. It was wow. really impressive. Mm -hmm. No, it was like it. It really changed things for me. What a nice art. start into the world of fashion photography. It is. Mm -hmm. It's and, a weird situation nice because I'm I'm kind of perplexed that you had no interest really in the art before you were in college. So then you're in college, and then you're introduced to photography at that point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. It wasn't something I could consider as a career or did. I, I took a lot of pictures. It was more like a hobby for you Motorcycling along. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, with my friend. And then there was a lab in LA that saw the pictures and put them up and said, oh my gosh, can we put them in the windows and on the walls? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And uh, So you had a hidden talent, mm -hmm. obviously. I quit my job in casting oh. and, <laughs> and started a photo business and absolutely starved for a while. I mean, naivete <laughs> has played a huge role in my career. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I got into photography. And then fashion through uh, Beth. And then when I went to New York, uh, there was an editor at Condé Nast, and this is really what made a big difference. She would take a meeting every time I visited mm -hmm. and was a bit of a mentor. I still, bless her, I'm not quite sure why, but she did. And she would look at the work and she said, you need to get a studio here. You need to get an apartment. So I did. And the studio that I had turned out to be uh, in Chelsea, what became Chelsea. And uh, I'd go show her my work. And I could imitate at that point the work that was in the magazines very well. But she never hired me. Oh. And I was really, really upset. With, with, to work with Condé Nast? Yeah. yeah. Oh. So I'd been, I'd been doing this other body of work in the studio on my own. And I 
changed the entire portfolio, and I thought, okay, if they don't like this, I'm going to quit. I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. I was convinced. And I showed her this new body of work, and she opened it up and flipped through, and she said, how wonderfully unselfconscious. I've been waiting for this for a year and a half. I finally know what you can do. You've been trying to please me ever since we met. And then she said, let me take you in back and introduce you to the rest of the crew. I really almost cried. She oh my took God. me back to meet all the other editors. She took me down another Florida, another magazine. What year? And, when was this? Oh, this is when I first moved into New York. So it would have been the around 99. 99. Yeah. Okay. Perseverance. Actually a little, mm-hmm. little earlier than that. Yeah. So apparently the trick is to ride motorcycles in college. <laughs> yeah. And then you become you know, yeah. a famous fashion photographer. There you go. It's unbelievable. Wow. So <laughs> what's just why you're why we're in New York, you know, right now we're on that topic. So how did did that lead to the gallery that you ultimately opened in New York? Well, it, it did actually. Uh, I had the space. I had co-curated a collection for a company called Swiss Re, a big reinsurance company, a top six floors of the Helmsley building along with the lead curator. And 9-11 hit and all the work that I had in fashion was gone. I mean, the, the magazines didn't know what to do and the editorials I was shooting were canceled. And also a lot of better known photographers moved down at that point to take the jobs that I had. Uh, so I had a job for Cavassier in October and had nothing. So in January, there were a lot of galleries in my building at that point. I put some friends work up on the wall and opened the doors and people came. I thought, well, I've always wanted to open a gallery. I'll open an art gallery. <laughs> so friends friends laughed. They said, you can't open a gallery. You have no experience. I said, well, it's open. <laughs> <laughs> You'll fig- I'll figure it out. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And the deal was it had to make money. It had to be a real mm. business. And uh, we did that. It, it was an extraordinary experience, really. That's, yeah, that's really impressive because, yeah, I know some people in the art gallery space in New York, and it is a tough business. Yeah, we got to build a handful of careers, and we were there for 10 years, and it was it was really great. I continued to shoot, and then at that point, I was at ASMP, and then Parsons saw some of all that work, and I ended up at Parsons, uh, teaching at Parsons School Design. Yeah, I want to... by accident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I want to talk about that, too. I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, this, because this is just fascinating to me in terms of the artistic piece of this, and then you you obviously have some natural talent that you may you may or may not even be aware of yet, but apparently uh, everyone else knows you have this natural talent. It's so refreshing this particular show to get back to the art of fashion, where some of the shows just before this were on sustainability and were on the legal aspects and trademarks, which were all important and interesting, but I think we've been clamoring to get back to the fashion aspect. How do you look at the human experience in terms of fashion and art and photography? I think it's there's the experience of design and everyday fashion, and then there's the experience of the fashion image. And they're slightly different, but they both define, I think, historically who we are socially, morally, economically, technologically, right? If I, if I say the 60s or the 80s or the 2000s, you have an image and it's people dressed in a certain kind of clothes mm-hmm. or a certain amount of diversity or lack thereof, right? So fashion has always been on that cutting edge, uh, whether, you know, in the 60s, the women's rights movements and the civil rights movements and, you know, skirts were shorter and women weren't wearing bras and that was scandalous, you mm-hmm. know, for the time in the 70s and 80s, you had disco and punk. So fashion really defines who we are, whether it's 
the imagery or the designer, if they're great designers. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of the art. The other thing is you get to work with extraordinary creative teams at the highest levels, whether you're creating imagery or collections. And there's an absolute beauty to that because it isn't, it, it, you may motivate something, but it isn't just you. If you have a great team, that, that really makes a difference in the outcome. So how, when you say team, how many people are on your team uh, as a photographer at a real big time kind of designer shoot? Well, there's, there are a lot. I mean, it depends on the scale of the shoot, but um, I consulted uh, with coach, with Reed Krakoff, the designer, when he was a coach for a while. And we would have, and that wasn't even a big set, we would have myself, two or three additional photo assistants, uh, stylist, stylist assistants, hair, makeup, makeup assistants, uh, one or two models, three or four models some days. And then if we shot with hot lights, we'd have, you know, a specialist to, to handle the hot lights, to handle the HMIs. So the crew can be quite big. And then on the designer side, they would bring in art directors and the creative team and their whole team, right, who, is gonna, who are going to monitor the shoot. And Reed was always there. Uh, so the, the team can be substantive. And we would do a pre-light day, so we would go in a day early if we could and pre-light the set to make the day more valuable when everybody was on set. It's amazing because it's so costly to do that. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, boy, you'd better be selling a lot of units. Mm -hmm. You'd better be selling a lot of units. This has kind of gone off base. But I think you were interested in the whole Instagram too. Because yeah, I you're was talking about this yeah. major shoot and I'm thinking mm -hmm. of people walking down the street clicking and, and all of a sudden that's on every Instagram like that, you know. Yeah, a lot has, I'm sure a lot has changed in the world of fashion photography. But in your opinion... How has the 24-7 fashion photo culture affected fashion photography? Well, in a couple of ways. One is Mario Sorrenti, I'll use him as an example. He was kind enough to both be interviewed for the book and the fashion image and donate an image of Kate, who also said yes. And he joined me on stage at Parsons when we did the book launch. It was amazing. And he talked about how it has affected his career, he now has to deliver so much more. Mm. So originally when things like Instagram came out, you could hire a second team to shoot it, but they want everything to be cohesive. So he really has to be deeply involved. So in the beginning of his career, he could shoot maybe a couple days a month. and make. Oh. And, but now he's shooting more days and having to produce more in those mm, shoots. There's more pressure. Right. Well, and you have to deliver mm -hmm. for the website and Instagram mm -hmm. and the campaign. And then for a lot of smaller photographers and smaller is a relative term it's just he's at the top of the, the photo world instagram becomes a place where you build visibility every editor i know looks on instagram for new talent or if if you meet somebody and you're out they don't say give me your website they'll say give mm -hmm. me your instagram right and they'll look at it maybe immediately and the conversation starts or doesn't so instagram plays an extraordinary role and it helps a lot i'm sure a lot yeah it's <laughs> yeah. a career changer and i also think it's made fashion photography accessible to a lot more people. So I do think it's more interesting for a lot, a lot of people than it used to be. And you saw in the beginning of Instagram, maybe a lot of bad fashion photography, a lot of just people making stuff. And I, we're still seeing that. <laughs> we're still seeing a lot of that. <laughs> and I, I'd like to believe there's a trend back towards clients enjoying well-crafted imagery and, uh, and imagery that's technically sound and conceptually deep. I, I do believe that's happening to a certain extent. We have had this discussion many times, but I think our feeling is that the fashion industry seems to be 
dependent on Instagram now. I mean, if mm -hmm. okay, assume Instagram goes away tomorrow. Now what? I mean, are, are we going to go backwards? Are we going to? No one's buying magazine. Yeah. <laughs> another one. Yeah. But yeah. is the it not? Be dancing on TikTok. Yeah, 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 TikTok, <laughs> yeah. which is probably yeah. next. That's next. Yeah, the, it is. Yeah, I TikTok. Think. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about it. What sure. What is next? What is the? I mean, ten years hence, where are we at with this? Instagram is just a you know a blip on the screen. Is it more interactive? Is it more video? Is it more audio and video? No, no. I think I think Facebook, Facebook, although it has its feels dated to a lot of people, mm -hmm. it still has a role, and I think Instagram will have a role with a For certain audience, time. whoever that audience is going to be. I don't think you'll be able to ignore it. Uh, will things be more interactive? No question. Will we walk through virtual spaces for sure? But I don't think that means photography goes away. I don't think that means these other methods of consumption go away. I do think there'll be another app and whether it's TikTok or, you know, Vine was TikTok really, it just died. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. So, you know, who knows what'll be next? Uh, every generation wants whatever their parents didn't have. <laughs> so there has to be another app, whether it's TikTok or something else. And that'll happen. I don't know if it's video. The Chinese, this is an interesting conversation. The Chinese groups I'm working with are deeply invested in video. And they believe that video-based narrative is the way everything works there. That's how people consume. And, you know, it's a culture that virtually lives on their phone. They pay for everything with their phone. Mm -hmm. They book everything on their phone. I don't know any women who carry purses there unless it's decorative. So, yeah. Wow, uh, yeah. that's interesting. It's extraordinary. So they they believe in video, I think. Video has limitations based on your time and where you are and consumption. If I'm on the subway in New York, I'm probably not watching video. And hopefully the person next to me isn't without headphones. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. But doesn't that ducktail into this, the whole issue of the future of fashion and video and Instagram? Do you morph from Instagram to video to avatar type stuff? And do you get away from this over-reliance on fashion shows because you see it seems like there's a fashion show every week and when you have an international virus or something that just you know beats the the hell out of the industry mm -hmm. so is there something weird like that around the corner well i think you continue to see spectacle right so you have a lot of big designers moving to kind of shows that like they used to that are individual shows that are more spectacle and immersive and that gets a lot of visibility on Instagram and social media, and that's part of what they want. I do think you will have, uh, I don't know if a greater dependence, but even an increased usage of those outlets, whether it's video or YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or any other way you can get your message out to people. We'll probably see uh, channels of purchase being developed a little more rapidly. You know, if I post something on my Instagram and I'm wearing this coat and you can purchase it off my Instagram. I see you'll, prob you'll probably see those things uh, increase. So, yeah, I, th I think there'll be changes that are brought about. Fashion shows for young designers are still probably the best way, if you get 10 of them together, to get an editor or two in the audience and to get some visibility, right? So on some level, I think you might see that. I'm curious to know about the, the Thomas Werner Projects. Tell us about that. Well, Thomas Werner Projects is an umbrella company, for lack of a better way to put it. When I first started out as a photographer, it was Thomas Werner Images. As I began to do lectures around the country and work internationally and to write and curate, 
uh, became Thomas Werner Projects. And unbeknownst to me, it's, you know, in the beginning, it, it really became kind of a nice umbrella for all these things. I didn't imagine it at that point. The projects early on were going to Russia or curating or, but now that other things are occurring, people are much more comfortable with that. I had this conversation last night. If you look at the early 1920s, 30s, you had the Dadists and Steichen and Man Ray and the Surrealists and designers like Schiaparelli all come together and they influence each other. You saw the same thing in the 70s and 80s where you had like Studio 54 and you had musicians and you know people like Truman Capote and Andy Warhol all hanging out together and influencing each other. That same moment is happening now. And I think it gives people like myself, but even more so uh, young people moving into the industry, the opportunity to diversify. And I think that's actually respected more uh, than it used to be. Elizabeth Renstrom's an extraordinary woman. She's the new photo editor of The New Yorker. She was a photo editor of Vice magazine. And uh, she's also a, a writer. She's also a photographer. And she also has a line of fine art that she exhibits a line of fine art. It's probably the wrong word. She'll be upset about that. But, <laughs> but, but, it, but it's amazing because she's just a creative. And the magazines allow her to photograph for other magazines and their own and to write. And I think she's an example of just that, somebody who's owned this moment and turned it into something of her own. So, Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Did you, speaking of magazines, so how did you get involved? Is the Irk magazine and your mm -hmm. position there related to Thomas Warner Projects? Is that part of that umbrella or is that just another career you had? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's something else I do. It isn't, it isn't under the umbrella of Thomas Warner Projects because I'm not, I'm an editor, editor at large. I'm not. Uh, one of the editors or owners of the magazine. When I did, wrote the fashion image, uh, the editors in London asked me to make the book a little more international. So I was introduced to uh, Julian and Mia, who are the editors and owners, and interviewed them about the magazine and about Paris and et cetera. And they referred me to someone else who I interviewed. And they said, we like the way you do this. We think you do a really great job. Would you do interviews for the magazine? I said, yeah, sure. And that's turned into an extraordinary opportunity. They're great. I think their design is amazing. And I've been able to interview people like Bertrand Guillon, who was the couturier at Chipperelli. I've interviewed uh, Erwin Olaf, the oh, really? artist oh. who I deeply respect. And I've, uh, yeah, so it's, wow. it's been great. It, it, what a great experience. It provides mm -hmm. access. And, uh, but it's interesting that Bloomsbury said, hey, wait a minute, we'd like this to be a little more international. Is that because they thought the whole fashion experience is more international or was the original version of your book more, was it more domestic? I think uh, two things happened. One is because I was in New York, it became a little New York centric, uh, okay. give mm -hmm. access right to people and, and mm -hmm. things. So it becomes that. Uh, they're based in London and they are an international company and they understand well the need to have an international scope if you're going to resell the book in other countries in other languages. So, and it also, quite frankly, they were completely right. It, it gives the book a different nuance and a different gravity. The other half of this is the way fashion functions in different parts of the world is very different. You know, cultural norms, uh, visual norms. It's important for somebody who's vested in fashion to begin to understand those nuances as images move across multiple media platforms you know, with the speed of light. I mean, you need to understand the cultures you're engaging with. Yeah, no, I love the book. The The fashion image is the book, and that will be linked uh, on the show notes. How's the book doing internationally then? book's doing nicely. Bloomsbury mm. is very happy. They've asked me to 
write a second book on fine art photography. Perfect. Really? So, okay. Oh, When's so that? this is your first book? It's my first yeah. book. Oh, they, and it, you published it two years ago? Yeah, it came out two, two and a half years ago. Actually, I received an email from Georgia, one of the editors. She said, I'm coming to New York. Do you have an idea for a fashion book or know somebody who does? <laughs> I, I never again. I, yeah. And uh, I said, sure. So we met for coffee and I pitched her three ideas. And she said, well, instead of writing three books, you should write the book. Let's put them all together. Wow. And I was, again, very naive and so okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. And that led to the fashion image. And you, how, how long did that take to get this book done? Yeah. It, it takes about two and a half years. The mm. second book, they gave me a slightly shorter timeline. But um, two and a half years. And what you realize when you write a book is that you do a lot of work before they say yes. So I had to come up with the table of contents, a description oh. of all the chapters, a sample chapter. Mm. Then your editor takes that and pitches it to the editorial board. And the editorial board can say yes or no. And uh, yeah, at any right, at, actually at so any point so along long. the way, they can kill it, mm. which is frightening. Well, you were, <laughs> yeah. you, After you put in all that work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you didn't have anything else to do. You were just globetrotting, <laughs> teaching, lecturing, speaking. What? Yeah, what's uh, another you, book? Yeah. <laughs> I'm thankful, to be honest. A lot of collaboration, I would mm -hmm. think. Yes. But you're used to that if you're telling us there's a lot of collaboration with photography. So then wasn't the book kind of a natural segue for you? Mm -hmm. uh, I will say two things. Whether it's being a photographer or an author or doing projects, uh, having a great individual team and personal assistant makes a big difference. I want to give a shout out to Danielle. My, she lives in Texas now. She was a student at Parsons. And she's oh, she's really virtual. Virtual assistant. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but she's there and she's mm. somebody you can count on. And I have to oh. say that's essential. In terms of the book, I did 44 uh, interviews. So that's wow. all yeah research and then had them transcribed and built that into the book. 175 images-ish. And that's a lot of work. It it both drew on existing networks and expanded my network in ways I never imagined. I just didn't understand when I started the project. Yeah, the images are phenomenal. phenomenal. And, yeah, I love the book. And it's it's not just a book of images. It's There's a lot of uh, copy in here, too. There's a lot of reading. It's almost, to me, isn't it like a, it's like a college textbook in, in one is, way, but yeah. then it's in this... You know, it's a step up on your coffee table book, but then it's just an interesting reference book. I don't. How did where where have they placed it? You know, well, originally, uh, other than it's under art and photography. Or? Yeah, originally they wanted a textbook, and I said mm. nobody, with all due respect to all the textbook writers, <laughs> most students and most other people aren't going to buy a textbook. And the next step, I, I really wanted a book of photographs with 80,000 words of text as opposed to 80,000 words illustrated by images. And it sounds subtle, but it isn't. It really changes the way that you begin to position the book. So once we got into the book and laid it out, they decided to move it to visual arts. And I didn't want it just to be for students. I wanted it to be for career changers, working photographers, students, and people in the fashion industry, because it speaks to all those things, as well as editorial and advertising. So. The goal was to position it in that space, and I think that's what's helped sales because it's it's designed forward, it's photo forward, and it kind of has a breadth of reference. You know, because I've been reading through here, and of course, I, I there's even a chapter on sustainability, my favorite <laughs> fashion Not your subject. Favorite subject. <laughs> so thank you for that. So you've been traveling to Russia and working and collaborating on projects there for over 13 years. So tell us about your experience in Russia. 
Sure. I've, I've worked in 33 cities in Russia with 26 cultural, educational, governmental organizations, uh, both ours and Russian. It's been an extraordinary experience. I uh, curated a number of exhibitions, had a seven-year collaboration with the State Hermitage uh, Museum, which is similar to the Metropolitan here. Worked with a number of educational institutions and given workshops both on fashion and on video and photography, contemporary photography around the country. And judged a fashion competition actually in a city called Omsk in the middle of Siberia. And uh, it's home, surprisingly, to Russia's most progressive fashion school and nationwide competition. That's interesting. Who's coordinating this for you? Is it on the Russian side? Are they saying, are they inviting you over and then they're coordinating it for you where you go and how long you're there and all that good stuff? Or are you allowed to say, I'd really like to visit these areas? Uh, I have, I've done work uh, supported by our U.S. Department of State, uh, quite a bit of it actually. And then I've done some work that's been supported by regional Russian governments. I've had extraordinary freedom. Neither side has ever asked me to say a certain thing or do a certain thing. I've had pretty great freedom. Uh, I ended up going to Russia because I wanted to know, I wanted to see Russia in the Eastern Bloc before it became too westernized. Did a tour of the Baltics, which was amazing, then went to Russia for four days and came back and after an ASMP board meeting met a guy on a train platform with a bag that said U.S. Embassy Moscow, which I've never <laughs> seen since, even at the embassy. <laughs> and I went up, which I, I don't do to people on trains and planes, and I talked to him and I said, hey, I'd like to do one project. And he said, okay. Uh, he gave me his card and he said, send a proposal. The sent a proposal. He sent back two names and email addresses. And I very naively got on a plane, all dressed up. I had my CV printed out absurdly. There's a theme here, isn't this? A <laughs> yeah. naively theme. Now, yeah, I know it is, right? If I'd known any better, I probably wouldn't have. And flew over. And the first woman in Moscow introduced me to a gentleman named Bajanov, who ran the National Center of Contemporary Art. And he didn't know what to do with me. I mean, I just kind of appeared in his office. And he introduced me to a man named Josef Axstein, who I met in the old Lenin Museum, which at that point was kind of stuff stacked all over the place. And he sat down and he was starting the Moscow Biennale. So he said, people laugh at me. They say, I will not have this Biennale and it's a silly dream. <laughs> and you, he leaned over, I'll never forget, he leaned over with his finger pointing at me. He goes, you, you will speak at my Biennale <laughs> and you will speak at Bazanov's <laughs> museum. I said, okay. He said, okay. <laughs> so I ended up speaking at the first Moscow Biennale and absolutely bombed because I didn't understand what it meant to speak. <laughs> oh, but you speak the language. I speak right. a little bit of Russian. Oh, okay. I'm not fluent, fluent. Mm. I can't give a talk, mm. but I can get around. How safe is it just to fly into Russia and say, I'm here, <laughs> I'm here, I'm here, I'm ready to go. What are we going to... Well, at that point, I spoke like 10 words. Oh, <laughs> oh no, that was, yeah. So I, I, I bombed in Moscow, or I thought I did. So I went to St. Petersburg and met a woman named Mary Ellen Countryman who worked for our Department of State. And she actually changed everything. She uh, introduced me to the people at the Hermitage. And it was their first contemporary art exhibition, USA Today. And one of the artists, Chuck Close, was there. And another artist and the third artist couldn't make it. His visa wasn't approved. So I was standing there with Sophia, who runs a program, and Mary Ellen. And Mary Ellen said, well, why don't you have Thomas speak? And Mary Ellen looked me up and down slowly and said, <laughs> oh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and Mary Ellen said, look, you know, you really need to run it. It's important. People are coming. And they did. And we had about 150 people come. We had 175 come to the follow-up, and I critiqued work for about six and a half hours. And at the end of that, a girl came up and said, 
young girl came up and said, thank you, you give us hope. Oh. And with that, I said, I will, to myself, I'll come back whenever people allow me. Wow. Um, Mary Ellen was kind enough to include me. At that point, the State Department had delegations. So you'd have a business person, an art, an education person. And I was like the art and education guy. And we would go to these provincial cities. I started to meet people in the creative arts because there's still the remnants of kind of Soviet photo schools and things. Mm. So they'd say, oh, you need to meet my friend in Murmansk. He's great. They have a great <laughs> photo club. And I'd get on a plane and go to Murmansk. And I got a, they said, don't take a taxi when you get to Murmansk. We'll pick you up. So they picked me up in a van with no windows. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I got in the oh back with my, my equipment and drove <laughs> off into the tundra of uh, northern Russia. But but people were really amazing, you know, and they appreciated yeah. it. Um, fashion played a role. Photography played a role. And it just kind of took on its own life. And so I've been grant funded almost every year by somebody to work in Russia. That's yeah. really impressive. So, so what, thir how many years has it been now? 13. 13 yeah, 13 years. 13 years? Yeah, 14. Yeah, this year, yeah. And Great. so now you're, are you planning on working in China on a project? I am. I'm, I'm planning on going back to Russia to do a fashion workshop this summer uh -huh. if that works out. And then hopefully in the fall to do a series of workshops to build cultural collaborations. Um, I'm waiting to hear back on that. And then, yes. Uh, wait, wait. On, on Russia, yes. I, I can't let this go. So... <laughs> Fashion in Russia, you know, my mind just draws a blank when I think of Russian fashion. And I don't... I know. I don't know. What is it? What do you know, Christine? Have you, I don't know. So I can what, don't have how would you describe... Because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so opaque, right? We don't see any of it. And it's you're true. saying they're having fashion shows, they're doing I this know, and that. I was like, true. really? Yeah. yeah. Who are they? And it, it, it may be very, very impressive. I don't know. Well, there, there are two things. Um, when I first went to Russia, I was impressed by how fashionable Russian women were mm. of every generation. And uh, at that point, young women would wear high heels even on the beach or in the snow mm. in Siberia. They would wear them everywhere. It was amazing. I asked, I asked one girl why she wore high heel boots in the ice and snow in Siberia. And she said, well, if you take the heel and stick it into the ice and snow, you don't fall. That's true. <laughs> it's easier. <laughs> Better grip. <laughs> Better grip than <laughs> boots, the boots I was wearing. So you have, a, you have a country that on one level deeply values the idea of fashion and being fashionable and being well-dressed. Not the men really, but the women. And Russian fashion, there are a group of Russian fashion designers in Moscow who design clothes similar to what you'd find in the West. There is no visibility, right? And the, the Russian fashion world is rather small comparably, right? Because the sales have generally existed within Russia. There are a couple of small designers in St. Petersburg, some women's wear brands like cute brands. And then you have a fashion school like the Technical Institute in Omsk who hosts shows from designers all over the country. And really it's, it's um, a little more like the work you might see at the Parsons fashion show, the mm -hmm. graduation show. You see people experimenting a lot oversized shapes, collages, uh, really more experimental design. The problem is, as there is in the arts, you don't have a large audience, a large middle class, that's going to purchase it. And the upper class is generally buying things in Switzerland or New York, right? right? Because they want to mm -hmm. take it back. So there's so no market. Mm -hmm. There's no market. The middle market is there, the lower end. The high end is tough. So you have a lot of very dedicated designers designing for clients who buy specifically from them. Mm -hmm. But that's exciting. So there's this big underground fashion movement yes. in, in, mm -hmm. in Russia. And I think and I'm thinking all the women are just walking around in capes and babushkas. <laughs> you know? 
And they're just, yeah, that's just not the case. And St. Petersburg, actually, last year, uh, the mayor of St. Petersburg said they wanted to try to create a fashion hub there. Oh, interesting. We'll see if that happens or not, but uh, they're certainly making an effort. Yeah, that would be cool, like to have a sister city like mm-hmm, Detroit, mm-hmm. Detroit or Chicago or Boston or... That's very interesting. Okay, sorry. I back on the back topic. To chi- back to China. <laughs> yeah, that's you. Go ahead, Christine. Yeah. So yeah, tell us about your experience in China and what, uh, the projects you're working on there. Well, China too is very fashion forward, particularly the women, but also the men. Uh, and if you're looking at men under 35, they're they're very on trend. And men over 35, many of them are very well dressed if they're in business. So uh, a lot of the large American fashion designers moved in. And uh, it's difficult to build a Chinese fashion brand for some of the same reasons you run into in in Russia. Uh, The monetization, people are attracted to things that have more cultural signifiers. But Chinese style is a little different than you're going to find on the streets of New York, right? It's a little funkier. It's a little more progressive. It's a little more risky. People take more risk. It's a little more playful. So probably not as much as Japan, though, right? Not quite as much. Not as much. Tokyo, their fashion is like, yeah. Or yeah, yeah, or Korea, but it Mm -hmm. tends towards Mm -hmm. that. Oh, okay. And that's that was really wonderful to see. So a fashion designer from New York asked me to go over and I gave a series of six, 12 talks in six cities in nine days this last (laughs) November. It was amazing and daunting. The welcome was extraordinary. I spoke at universities and then at art schools who have a fashion design component. And that was really mind blowing. Uh, the scale of the cities, the, the method of travel and kind of the enthusiasm for fashion. And then I went back again and worked with a, a woman and she brought a model and I back to work with her daughter and some young people and teach them about the fashion industry in America and in Europe because it's very different than fashion. And quite honestly, ideas of beauty are very different. What's the biggest difference between the Chinese fashion world and the U.S. fashion world? Well, I think the Chinese and U.S. fashion world, you're talking about scale and client base yeah. and brand identity. And you have a lot of people in China who are young designers or mid-sized designers who also have a clientele. But it's harder for them to build a larger brand identity outside of that or in the States, right? It's a, a little different dialogue. In terms of beauty, everybody in, uh, or all the girls in China or a lot of in Korea or Japan have apps that are beauty apps, right? Mm, so whenever you take a picture, yeah. it might change the size of your face, mm-hmm. your body. It, so uh, Instagram's a little different. Ideas of beauty are different. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a little bit more natural looking beauty, but oftentimes you have a lot of retouching going on and it's much more accepted there culturally. Something we would probably have a hard time with in the States mm-hmm. or Europe with the anti-retouching. I, I do notice that they invest a lot as well in beauty and in skincare yes. in Asia. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Especially yes. Korea. Especially yeah. Korea, yeah. So, th- so the timing is just amazing because now we have this coronavirus. Yes. So, so you went to Italy directly after that? Uh, is that what happened? Yeah. China How did November. you escape China? How did you Europe? escape China? <laughs> Northern <laughs> Italy pictures. Without being quarantined. Yeah. I'm in Milan. I'm here. I'm there. Now you're in Detroit. It's like, you're not supposed to be in the country, He's running. Dude. <laughs> no, you're yeah. not supposed yeah. to be here. Not, how'd you sneak in? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, northern border to Detroit is yeah, always yeah, the best way, yeah. I was told. And here we are. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, the, I did, luckily. Get it, get out of China uh, before the virus spread, or at least we knew it was spreading. And then went to Italy uh, end of January, early February, 
had gone to partner with a, a Chinese team, and we were putting together a series of workshops. I went a little early and flew into Rome, and then went down to Sorrento and Capri, just to enjoy myself for a little while. And on the way back, uh, got an email, or actually a, a WeChat, that said our flight's been canceled. Lufthansa's canceled mm. all flights out of China. So I was there by myself and ended up taking advantage of the time there to see Florence and do a trip that I'd always wanted to take. They'd also asked me, since I was the only one there, to uh, vlog or at least shoot videos for a vlog. So I bought my first selfie stick, which was really <laughs> embarrassing and humbling, um, and did videos of various places and introduced them. And they're going to edit some of that together as a promotional video. Oh, that's uh, that exciting. we can use. And then I'm working on a second promotional piece. We have a team, a really extraordinary young woman who's put together a team in China, Italy, UK, and, and myself from New York. And we're putting together a team and we're kind of taking a holistic approach to fashion and the arts. Uh, so we have a little movement. We talk about career. We have someone from McKinsey who speaks about career. Uh, I'll be speaking about fashion and the arts and education and career paths. Kind of my career path is very different than one you would yeah, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. But you, you talk to students there about that and, and they can't imagine it. So a big part of my talks there were, this is how your career can work. And, and it's okay to take risks. It's okay to fail. It's okay to try things that you don't know the end game. I, if, if Russia taught me anything, it was kind of having faith in things that you don't know the end game for mm. and kind of believing it and taking that risk and trusting mm. it. It's in their culture. Well, it's not in their culture, but it's in. It was in. It was in, and I didn't mean that dismissively. It's not. Oh. The Russians don't don't inherently trust. Really? No. <laughs> but uh, but what they do do mm-hmm. is uh, they they do take risks, and Russia provided me the opportunity to take a lot of risks. And quite honestly, let's be honest, there isn't any reason that I should have been able to go to thirty three cities and develop all these projects. You know, it was finding great partners. It was good timing. It was a lot of hard work. It was finding the right funding. Uh, I feel, you know, really lucky to have been able to make that happen. Mm-hmm. And then to go back, China's the same. I mean, they think it's good timing. timing I'm lucky to yeah. have found some good partners. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can move that forward. Yeah, so it's an incredible out. experience. Because mm-hmm. you're pro- honest to God, you're probably the only person in the world that's done it, right? I mean, who else has done this? Especially in the fashion world? Mm-hmm. Come on. Nobody. Tim Gunn, maybe? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know Tim. He's you like, know yeah. him? Yeah. I was going to ask you that. Because Tim, he, yeah, he's from no. Parsons. Yeah. Oh, he's a sweetheart. He's exactly like he is on the show. Really? He's absolutely yeah. one of the nicest people oh. you ever want to meet. We'll, have, of, him, we'll have him on the show we then next. Well, well no, we'd no, love to should. Skype with him. Yeah, just do the audio Skype. It yeah. would be great. Yeah. He's quite humorous, too. I've heard him on NPR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's yes. busy with the new show, I believe, right now. Right? Tim's a little busy. Yeah. Yeah. Just He can squeeze you in, though. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, Thomas Warner, thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you. A real honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us on our website at fashioncastpodcast.com. I'm Christine. And I'm Michael. Stay beautiful.